from the time that I first came to know the Lord and I caught a whiff of the fact that God responded when we prayed, I lived my life with this kind of transactional relationship with God or this faith where I felt like if I gave things to God, if I bartered with God, if I gave him things that he really wanted, then he would give me the things that I really wanted. And so this came to a head for me about 12 years ago this month. Just got done with high school. I was in Nigeria for a month. And four days before we're getting ready to come back, my mom and my dad, myself, and my four brothers and sisters get robbed at gunpoint on a dirt road in the middle of nowhere. And so as we lay down on the ground, all I could think of was to pray. And so what I did, I prayed and I said to God, God, if you'll save me, then I'll spend the rest of my life trying to make you known. And it worked. And I felt like that because it worked, I started my Christianity on the wrong foot. In this, because it worked, I felt like that was the way that things worked. I give God what he wants, and then God's going to give me what I want. But then what took place was that I got to college, things started to go really bad for me, and the relationship that I had with God started to become increasingly more complex because I would give him all of the things that he wanted, but he wouldn't give me the things that I wanted. And so I started to find out that this transactional faith that I had with God, it really started to, to break down. Now, your journey may have not been as dramatic as mine, but one thing that I know about you as well as me is that this world tends to pull us in that direction where we feel as if we have to barter with God, that we live our lives interacting with God based on this type of transactional relationship with him. That each one of us, we take the raw data that is our lives and we use it to form conclusions about God, who he is and how it is that he relates to us. But the data that we tend to use more often than not is the results of our prayers, the outcomes of the things that we depend God for. Most of us form our theology of prayer based on how God responds to our most recent prayer. Some of us here in this room are on the front end of this, so we've got the, the good side of the stick. There's those of us in here that have been praying and asking for God to do great things for us, and if he were to do those things, then we would fulfill our end of the bargain, and God's done it. There's those of us that are here in this room that you've gotten the promotion that you hoped for. Your marriage is thriving. Have kids, you got into the new house. So for all intents and purposes, the transactional relationship with God is working well for you and there is no cause for concern. But then there's those of us here in this room who have seemed to have gotten the short end of the stick. 
that you've prayed and you've asked God for kids for years to no avail. Tried to adopt for years to no avail. Your marriage or your parents' marriage is on the verge of crumbling. You don't know where rent's going to come from. You don't know if you're going to have your same job this time next week. And if you're anything like me, when you get the short end of the stick, all that this does is harden your heart towards this great God that has the power to give you all of these good things. Forget trying to share your faith. You're trying to convince yourself if you really believe that this is true. So what takes place when we fall in these hard times is we start to form one of two conclusions about God. God can't. Or God won't, right? Because if God could, then he would. But the fact that he does not, we feel like that he can't. Or God won't. And if you feel like God won't, there's probably one of three things that are true of you. One, you may think that God won't because he doesn't love you. Or Or he doesn't love you at least as much as he loves your next door neighbor that gets all of those things. So what you do is you spend all of your time trying to do things to make God love you more with the hopes that he'll give you a more favorable scenario. Or maybe you think that you just don't have enough faith. That if you had more faith, then God would do that. While most of you wouldn't say that out loud here because you're taught very, very well, But you feel that. Maybe I just don't have enough faith. So you spend all of your time trying to muster up more faith to no avail. Or thirdly, you may feel like God is punishing you. That God's mad at a sin that you did a while ago, and so he's going to make everything go wrong to try to get you back. And then what you do is you spend all of your time trying to go back into your head and recounting all of the bad things that you've done. And now all that all of this does is it distracts us from the real thing that our mind should be on. It makes us think that the problem that we have in this life is the scenario that we're in. That if things would only be better, then life would be good. But when the bottom falls out, when things go wrong, we're actually in the best place to really come to grips with what true faith is. Ecclesiastes 7, Solomon says this, in the day of prosperity, rejoice. But listen, but in the day of adversity, consider, think that the same God has brought one as well as the other. That when the bottom falls out, it's then and there that we're really forced to wrestle with true faith. How do we maintain this true and abiding faith when things don't go as well as we hoped that they would? And if that question resonates with you at all, the best place that I know to turn to get an answer to that tension is Daniel chapter 3. So meet me in Daniel chapter 3. So I want to start off, as you turn there, just to say this. Listen, 
The Bible is written for people like us. The Bible is written for people that have real problems and real tensions, right? So the best way that I know how to describe it is like this. What I've found in my life is that whenever I run into any problem, if the pipe in my basement bursts and and my floor is flooded, if my car makes a weird sound, if I buy my shoes too big and I find out what things do, do, uh, do I need to do to fit in my shoes, what I found out is that I can go into Google, type in anything that I face, and instantly what I find out is there are millions of people that have dealt with the exact same thing that I've gone through. And more than that, there are people that have answers to all of the things that I've gone through. So what I find out in my problems, in my struggles, I'm not alone and there are answers. This is what the Bible is for us. In our struggles, in our tensions, we are not alone. There are answers. There are people that have been faithful to God and in their faithfulness have been put in a scenario that seems like it's going to end in their destruction, but they don't do what we do. They don't waver in their faith, but they stand firm. And so we come here and we say, how? And that's what takes place in Daniel chapter 3. To set the scene for, for you, God's people are in exile. In chapter 1, God shows his ability to sustain and to bless his people in a hostile land. Chapter 2, God shows his ability to sustain his people in a hostile land where the hostility is aimed at them. So time and time again, this book starts off just showing us God is able, God knows how to save his people from disaster. And in Daniel 3, verse 1, it starts off and it says this, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. So 90 feet uh, high times 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Verse 2 through 4, what goes on is he gets the most well-respected people from every nation that is in exile there and brings them all out. And he says this in verse 4. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship, listen, shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. All types of people, all types of influential people that all have their own gods, their own gods that they serve. And this king says, bow down here, and if you don't, you're going to die. And look here what takes place in verse 7. Therefore, listen, As soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages 
fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. What we see here is in an attempt to save their own lives, right? faithfulness to their God would have been seen or viewed as a death sentence. And so as soon as their lives were threatened, their faith was gone. As soon as they hit a scenario where things would not work out in their favor, their faith was gone. They took matters into their own hand and they worshiped another God. Every temptation towards idolatry is an indictment on the God that you serve. And so what takes place is all of the nations, as soon as they heard, this is what takes place in our hearts. Human nature wants to preserve itself at all costs. And they have this God, but this God that they serve is not worth more than the lives that they have. Verses 8 through 12 tell us that there are three boys who have a God that they view as worth more than the lives that they have. And what takes place is they come and they tell this king, and look at here what the king says in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. Listen, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Listen to this. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hand? This is an indictment on God's ability to deliver. Whenever we submit to an idol, that's what takes place. Whenever we as people are faced with the fact that obedience may be our death sentence, we have a choice to make. How many of us in this room or how many of us in this room knows somebody else who is getting ready to get married, is a Christian, and knows clearly what God says about Christians marrying Christians. They start to get up in age, and what they feel like is, if I maintain this faithfulness to God, it's going to serve as my death sentence to get what I want. And so what they do is they quickly throw God's standard overboard because they disbelieve that God can Every temptation to submit to an idol is an indictment on God's ability to satisfy. So look here what they say. Three boys whose obedience will likely be their death sentence. Look at what they say. Verse 16, Shadrach, 
Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, right here, we have no need to answer you in this manner. What they said is, hey, if it was just me and you, we would feel the need to push back. But you brought our God into this, and we serve a God who is capable of vindicating himself. Listen to this. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden Im- Im- image that you have set up. Two ingredients to this unwavering, confident, and indestructible faith. And the first one is this. Confidence in God's ability to deliver is indispensable to enduring faith. What they say is this. If this be so, or God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. How were they acquainted with God's ability to deliver? Because of Daniel chapter 1 and chapter 2. They were placed in tough times, in hard times, and God saved them out of it. More than that, they hail from a people who that's been God's track record. As as devout Jews, these would would have been boys that were well acquainted with God's word. And, And so you start and you look and page after page after page is God doing just that. He's doing the impossible and delivering his people. I had a professor that said this, that what God has done in the past is a plan and a model for what he will continue to do in the future, although he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. And so what you see, just look back. These boys are able to trust in God and to to submit to God because they have a belief that God can do the impossible, which is the one thing that all of God's people have in common. Abraham, Hebrews 11 says this, that when God asked him to give up his son, he did. Why? Because he believed that God could raise him from the dead, which he did do in a sense. And Why did he believe that? Because in his old age, God promised him a son, and he gave him one. God came through. Moses, the children of Israel, God delivered them from the most powerful nation that ever was on the earth at that time without them having to lift a finger. When David was getting ready to fight Goliath. Do you know what he did? He said, man, there was this bear once, and I tore this bear apart with my bare hands. And there was this lion, and God saved me from out of that. So I know that God's going to do the same thing right here. What makes surrender to God possible is a deep-seated, abiding belief that we serve a God that can do the impossible, 
And so the question is this, where in your life do you currently doubt God's ability to do the impossible? Where in your life do you see obedience and faithfulness towards God as a death sentence? Is it your marriage right now? Though you smile and you're sitting right next to one another, is there something that's going on inside right now that as soon as you leave these doors, you're gripped with this fear and this doubt and you feel like there's no way that God can save this and therefore you take matters into your own hands and throw faithfulness to God overboard? Where do you feel like God can't do the impossible? And I want you to know that if that's you here and you struggle with that doubt, that that doubt only grows in isolation. When you're by yourself and you wrestle with these things on your own, it's only easier for that doubt to continue to grow and to grow and to grow. That's why the scripture calls us to do this week in and week out. Come in and sing songs where we rehearse the faithfulness of God. To hear God's word where his faithfulness is constantly rehearsed to us time and time again. Don't fall prey to isolation. Don't think that this is something that you can do on your own. God gives us the church. God gives us this great gift of community and his word so that we can rehearse his faithfulness. And the more that we rehearse it, the more that we see that he's done this time and time again, the better that we are equipped to deal with life when it, when it, when it, when it comes our way. That the first key to an enduring and indestructible faith is confidence in God's ability to deliver. And for that confidence to grow, we need to rehearse. Now, lest we think that all that we have to do today is to be confident that God can, and if we believe that he can, then he will, We've got to get to the next part of this text. And this is the thing that frustrates us most about God. Do you know the thing that frustrates us most or makes things hard? Is that God can do the impossible, but there are times when he chooses not to do the impossible for us. Right? It's one thing to cry out to somebody that can't help you. Because you're not mad if they don't, right? So if I leave here and I go home and I park my car and I get mugged and there's a school bus and it drops off first graders and I cry out to them for help and they run and don't help me, I'm not mad and upset. <laughs> there's very little that, that they can do. But if I find myself in the same predicament and a police officer walks by and I cry out to him for help, a, a, a guy who has all the equipment that's needed to save me and he doesn't, then I grow bitter. Then I go grow frustrated. And everybody that tells me 
how much he can do, that only makes me more frustrated because he hasn't done those things for, for me. Look at the back end of this verse, though. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Twelve years ago, I was sitting in my freshman dorm room, and I read this verse in, in my NIV Bible, and it forever changed the way that I viewed relationship with God. That what they say is this indestructible faith is not only confidence in God's ability to deliver, but it's contentment with his activity if he doesn't choose to deliver. That what they say is, our God can. But even if he does not, even if faithfulness to him is going to serve as our death sentence, there's nothing that you can do that's going to make us serve your God. That their faith and their confidence was not in a favorable scenario, but in a faithful Savior. They met this God who was worth more than the preservation of their lives. And we see this joy and abiding faith. Do you know the quickest way to discontentment? The quickest way to discontentment is holding God hostage to a predetermined outcome. It's taking God and chaining him up to an outcome that you've put in your mind that he's never agreed to. They don't do that. Charles Spurgeon says it the best where he says this. God is too good to be unkind. He's too wise to be confused. Even if I can't trace his hand, I can always trust his heart. And these boys had a contentment in God's action. God's inactivity is not the same thing as his inability. Just because God doesn't, it doesn't mean that he can't. God's inactivity is not the same as his indifference. Just because God doesn't, it doesn't mean that he does not care. God's inactivity is not the same thing as his indignation. Just because he doesn't, it doesn't mean that he's mad or upset. Right? At the end of this story, they trust that God's going to save them from this. And do you know what God does? God saves them. But in order to see somebody that was able to exemplify this faith fully, we have to fast forward thousands of years and look at the Lord Jesus. When Israel was once again un un under a foreign nation, Jesus, like, like we read here, he came and his goal was to secure people from every nation and tongue. 
Jesus knew that his goal was to come in here and to die. He knew obedience would be his death sentence. In Matthew 4, when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by Satan, what's the last temptation that takes place? Satan takes him, puts him up on top of the world, and says, look, look at all of the nations. I'm going to give you all of this. If you'll do what? Bow down. What he promised him was the kingdom without the cross. What he said was, I'll give you what you came for if you'll only throw faithfulness to God overboard for just one minute. And Jesus says, no, that we should worship God alone. And then he lived for roughly three and a half more years of pain and anguish and sorrow. And the night before he's getting ready to die, in, math, in, or in Mark 14, he prays the same prayer that these boys prayed. And what he starts off, Mark 14, verse 36, what he says is this. God, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but yours be done. He had a deep abiding confidence that God could do the impossible. But at the end of the day, Jesus says that he was content for God not to work on his behalf in that setting. And what he did in trusting himself to God went to the cross not for his sin, not for anything that he did wrong, but for all of the times that you and I worshipped things that weren't God as an indictment on who God was. For all of the times that we've been faithless, for all of the times that life didn't go our way, and we decided that it would be better to throw obedience to God off to the side, thus teaching the people that look at us that this God is not worthy of being worshipped. What Jesus does is he dies for all of that sin, for our sin. And he raises from the dead. And one day what takes place is this. Every tongue, every nation, every people will bow down and worship God. Not just because they're his. They're not going to do the same thing that was done at the start of this story. Where people are motivated to worship out of a fear of death. But Jesus is a much better king in that they are led to worship because of the life that he secured for them. That it's not a duty or an obligation. It's not a, a thing that we're forced into. It is a delight. And they worship this great God. Because in, in this time where Jesus prayed, God, take this cup. The Father, in his wisdom, said no. 
And it was not because he didn't love him. Outside of Christ's work for us, who does God love more than, than Jesus? It's not because he didn't have faith. Who has more faith than God's son? It's not because God was punishing him. Who is the least deserving person worthy of punishment than God's perfect son? It's because of God's infinite wisdom and intelligence. So here's one thing that I want all of us to sit with. At the start of this year, I read a book by a guy uh, by the name of Richard Baxter, and the book is called The Dying Thoughts. So on his way to death, he writes this book trying to gear himself up for what's getting ready to come. And what takes place there is he says this. I hope I shall never dare to say that God is mistaken in the things that he says no to or that I could have chosen better for myself. Many a time has the wise and good will of my God crossed my foolish and rebellious will and afterward I have perceived that it was best. The more I have tried him, the better I have found him. Had I better obeyed his ruling will how much more happy would I have been? Here's one thing that, that, that I want us all to know. Regardless of how much God loves you, how much faith that you have, or how sinless you are at any given time, there is going to come a day where you plead to God to save you from sickness, to save a loved one from sickness. There's going to be a time where you plead and you ask God with all of your might to give you something. And his answer is going to be no. I think of the Malaysian airline that crashed. And they said that there was this one family that had loved ones on both crashes. Think of all the people that are on that plane that's going down and they're pleading, God help us, God help us, God help us. And he says, no. Is it because he's wicked? Is it because he's unkind? Is it because he's angry at us? Not necessarily. Look at what he did to his son. But the beautiful thing about all of this, what helps us to endure these times where we know that God will say no or he could say no is the hope that there's something better that lies ahead. The author of Hebrews says this, Jesus died and in his death he freed all of those who were subject, who were enslaved to this fear of death. What Jesus does in his death and being raised from the dead is he shows us death is not ultimate. It's not the thing that's to be feared above all. There's something after death. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus himself endured the cross and he pushed through death to get to what lies ahead. 
And that's the thing that helps. That's the thing that we look back on and we reflect and we praise God for the fact that even though he didn't have to, even though he would have been just in punishing us for the sins that he committed, he chose to send his son to die for us and to die for our sin. And not just to die for our sin, but to raise and for his resurrection to be recorded here in this book and passed on to all of us so that we would know that death is not final. And if death is not final, then that means that for you and I, the preservation of our lives in this life is not ultimate. Our faithfulness towards God is not contingent on him preserving our life here and now. Because one day it is going to be done. But what Christ has showed us is there's a better future that lies ahead for all of us who don't hold God hostage to an outcome that we've predetermined. And so I pray that as we live and as we serve and as we go this week, that we would remember that we can be confident that we serve a God that can do the impossible, and we can be content even if he chooses not to do the impossible for us here and now, because one day he will. Let's pray.